Plan A was for me to go sit down now and Pastor Brandon to come up here. However, uh, Pastor Brandon has had some unexpected weight loss over the past uh, few hours, um, in- including a little bit after he arrived at church today. Uh, I am an ordained pastor in the Christian Reformed Church of North America. And it looks like the default, uh, if Brandon ever gets sick, uh, <laughs> to stand before you, I didn't know it would exactly come with that. So, so one of Pastor Brandon's many gifts is he is ferocious in his preparation. And another gift is that he talks really, really fast when he preaches. Um, and so I think 1130, 1145, we <laughs> should be out of here. So. Maybe a tad prior to that, so. So Brandon uh, has a little note in his, in, his, uh, in his script here that says pretext. And so uh, he writes this. Before we read the text this morning, I should say that I'm deeply indebted to Pastor Tim Keller for this sermon. He has an outstanding little book on this parable called The Prodigal God. It's short and you can read it in an afternoon. And I'd highly, highly recommend it. I just wanted to give him credit at the start because otherwise I'd have to stop and do that every other sentence. So just so you all know, I'm not as smart as I might sound this morning. It's all really Tim Keller. And I don't think I'm gonna sound that smart. And so we're, we're at least two people away um, from, from, from Tim Keller, but we're gonna do that. And for any guests here this morning, welcome, welcome. I'm the, I'm the Director of Community Connections uh, and Outreach here, and it's really good uh, to have you here. And please come back, because Brandon is an outstanding preacher, okay? Uh, I promise you that. So. With that as my uh, unscheduled introduction, uh, our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 15. If you are going to use your pew Bible, it's page 848. 849, rather. Note, as you find it, that the heading in our NAV Bibles is the parable of the lost son, which is a little different probably than the title uh, that you noted growing up. It goes like this. Jesus continued, and by continued the verb there, there's a series of three lost stories that um, Jesus tells here, and this is the third and the most lengthy of the three. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son 
said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, Brandon writes, a few years ago, Got to be careful with my pronouns here. So Brandon and Sarah had the opportunity to go to London, England for a week of vacation. Now, when they're at home, Brandon is the directions guy. He spent seven years here in college and seminary. Uh, he feels like he knows the broader Grand Rapids area pretty well. Even before looking up places that they go, Brandon can generally guess about where those places will be. Because of that, when they headed for London, Brandon assumed he would be the directions guy. He'd have the map, look things up, and get them from place to place. That lasted about a day and a half before they realized that uh, Brandon as map guy wasn't gonna work. More accurately, Sarah realized it right away, and it just took a day and a half uh, for Brandon to admit it because he's a guy. <laughs> I'm a guy too. <laughs> I can relate. You see, while Brandon's the directions uh, guy here at home, apparently put him in a foreign city and uh, he can't do it very well. The wonderful realization dawned on him during uh, their second full day there. It was a Sunday. They had just gone to an amazing church in the heart of London, London City Presbyterian Church, which if you're ever in London on a Sunday, Brandon recommends that you uh, check that out. They were headed to another part of the city for lunch. So they took a look at the map, and Sarah thought uh, they had to go one way, and uh, Brandon thought another way, and for whatever reason, probably to humble Brandon, Sarah decided to try his way. I'm just enjoying that, sorry. Um, <laughs> so off they went, and uh, that's how a few blocks later, when none of the road signs were making any sense, uh, Brandon finally realized that he wasn't going to be doing the directions anymore. You see, it turns out that he had led them to a pretty much, uh, pretty, pretty much uh, the exact opposite direction that they needed to go. But that wasn't even the biggest problem. The biggest problem was that he had no idea uh, how he did that. Uh, he still doesn't, by the way. He remembers feeling 100% sure that he was leading them in the right direction, and yet it turns out that they ended up completely lost, and he had no idea. No idea how lost they actually were. And it turns out the same thing is true of the two sons 
we read about in this parable. Brandon uh, confesses that he doesn't like the name most people know this parable by. Um, He doesn't think it should be called the parable of the prodigal son. And he thinks that for three reasons. One, most of us don't use the word prodigal very often. In fact, I think for most of us, including uh, Brandon, this parable is pretty much the only time we use the word. And so because of that, uh, a lot of us think we know what the word means when really we don't. A lot of us think prodigal means something like lost or wayward or rebellious, Uh, but that's not actually what, what it means. It actually means extravagant or lavish. It means to spend until you have nothing left. That's the reason the younger son in this parable is often called a prodigal. It's not because he rebelled against his father. Instead, it's because he spent everything he had. He was extravagant, he was lavish, he was wasteful. That's why he's known as the prodigal son. But that brings up the second problem with calling this the parable of the prodigal son, which is that it's not really the point. You see, the problem with this younger son here isn't that he was a prodigal. The point isn't that he was lavish with the things his father gave him, wasted them and spent them. That's certainly not good, but it's not the main issue we see going on with the younger son. Instead, the main problem, the main issue, the main point is that this younger son was lost. And so because of that, many scholars have proposed changing the name of this parable from the parable of the prodigal son to the parable of the lost son. And that's the heading that the NIV writers now use. And Brandon still uh, doesn't like that name for this uh, parable uh, because calling this the parable of the lost son implies that there's only one lost son in the story. But as we'll see this morning, the fact is that there are actually two lost sons. So let's see how this parable, the parable of the lost sons, plural, works. Act one, we have two sons, the older and the younger. The younger son is sick of his father. He's sick of living in his father's house. He's sick of his father's rules. He's sick of his father's authority over him. And so the younger son thinks the same thing every kid thinks at some point, which is if only I were in charge, then things would be the way they should be. And so the younger son makes a bold decision. He decides to go to his father and tell him that. Dad, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of living in your house, and so I want my inheritance so I can start living the way I want now. Now let's just hit pause for a second and make two quick notes about that. One, when do you get your inheritance? When your parents die, right? And yet this younger son is asking his still living father for his inheritance now. In other words, what the younger son is basically saying to his father here is, you're as good as dead to me. I don't really care about you. All I care about is what I can get from you when you die. Pretty bold, right? That would be bold in any culture, but especially in a patriarchal culture like first century Jewish society, where the father commanded unquestioned authority and respect. Second, related to that, though, is the second thing, uh, another thing that we need to make note of. Verse 12 says, in response to this bold request from his son, the father divided his property between his sons. In the Greek, the word translated, the words translated property are actually tanbion, which literally means living or life. That's because in those days, your property was your living. 
That's how you provided for yourself. You provided for yourself from what your property produced. So what the text is literally saying here is that the father divided his living, his well-being for his son. That's the inheritance he gave him, his very life. Hold on to that, it'll be important later. Back to the parable. So the son takes what he gets, turns his back on his father, heads off to a distant country, and then he just wastes it. And as a result, things get bad for him. And then they get a bit worse. And then they get worse after that. And pretty soon he hits rock bottom. But there's something about hitting rock bottom, right? There's nothing quite like rock bottom to wake you up. And that's what happens with the younger son here. He realizes he's messed up. And so he decides to go home. The problem though is that he's burned some bridges. Going home isn't just going home for him anymore. After all, he asked for his, inher- his inheritance from his still living father. He basically told his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. And then he took that inheritance, which for some reason his father gave him, and he wasted it. And so he knows he's not able to go back home the same person he used to be. He knows he's not going to be welcomed back with open arms. He knows he doesn't get to be the son he used to be anymore. So he comes up with a plan. In verses 17 through 19, he says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Instead, make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, he thinks if I go back to my dad and ask him to be a servant in his house, maybe, just maybe, he'll let me. I won't be a son anymore, I can't, because of what I've done. That's not possible. But maybe I can be his servant. Maybe he'll at least accept me on those terms. And so he heads home. He makes the long trek back to his country. He gets through the immigration and customs. He hitches a ride to his hometown. Walks down Main Street, comes to the road he grew up on and starts walking down it. And what happens? His father sees him, he sees him, and he runs to him. He runs to his son, throws his arms around him and kisses him, and the son starts in on his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, but the father ignores him. This son of mine was dead. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And in response, the whole household starts to celebrate. Normally, that would be the end, right? The end of the prodigal son. That's how stories work. Happy ending, everything works out, and everyone's back together on good terms. But not this story. You see, that was just the first half. It turns out there's a second. You see the father's older son. Remember him? He hears the celebration from where he's working in the field. He comes over to see what's happening. He catches a servant by the arm and asks him what all the commotion is about. And the servant tells him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older son rejoices. He says, I'm so glad my brother is home. I'm so glad he's safe. I'm so glad we have him back. And he runs into the house and embraces him. Right? Wrong. That's not what happens. Instead, the older brother can't believe it. Rather than join the party, he refuses to come in. Instead, he stands outside the door, seething. And so the father goes out to him. Notice how the father does that for both sons, by the way. He goes out to the older son and tries to convince him to come in. 
but the older son won't listen. Instead, he says, uh, instead he lays into his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, but when this son of yours, he doesn't call him when my brother, he calls him this son of yours, has squandered your property with prostitutes, drags himself back home, you throw him a party? But the father responds the same way to the older son that he did to his younger son. My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And that's how this parable ends. We don't know what happens next. We don't know if the older son stays outside or if he goes in. We don't know if the two brothers are reconciled, and we don't know if the father is reconciled to the older son either. Two sons, both are lost, each in their own kind of lostness, each representing a different way of being far from God. The younger son's lostness is easy to see, right? It's obvious. That's because the younger son is lost in really obvious outward visible ways. He's the party kid. He's into drugs and alcohol and sex and all the pleasures of the world. He's the kind of kid you look at and go, "Eh, I hope he proves us wrong, but I think we can predict what he'll be up to in college. You know, he's the rebellious wayward son who doesn't walk the straight and narrow. In fact, he walks just about any other way he can find. He's the kind of kid who comes up regularly in our small group prayer requests. He's the kind of kid we worry about. He's the kind of kid we warn our kids not to be like. And he's the kind of kid who, if we're being honest, makes us a little nervous when he shows up at church. He's lost. He's far from God. And it's not really that hard to see that younger son's lostness. What's a little harder to see is that the older son is lost too. And that's because his kind of lostness is more subtle. It's harder to recognize. It's not quite as obvious as a younger son's lostness, but it's definitely still there. And that's because the older son's lostness is a self-righteous, judgmental, proud kind of lostness. The older son's lostness isn't the visible outward waywardness of the rebellious younger son. Instead, his is an internal, perfectionistic, controlling spitefulness that looks down on everyone and everything that he thinks is beneath him which includes, by the way, just about everyone and everything. On the surface, the older son's got it all together. He's the golden boy. He's the one who dotted all his I's and crossed all his T's, towed the line, put his head down, worked hard, and got himself to where he is today. He wasn't like his brother, who was given everything as a handout by the father. Instead, the older son earned what he had from his father, or at least so he thought. And yet his heart is rotten. It's filled with pride. Hatred, selfishness, greed, and all the other sins we don't talk about as much as the more visible ones because we can't see them. But they're there and they're dangerous. And because of them, the older son is lost too. He's also far from the father. It's just not as easy to see. So again, there are two lost sons here, two kinds of lostness, two ways of being far from God. And here's the reason Jesus tells this parable. At the start, Jesus is with some, let's just say, less than desirable company. This is how Luke opens this chapter in verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so in response, Jesus tells three parables. 
He tells one, the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin, and the third, this one, the parable of the lost sons. And given that background, it's pretty clear who all the characters are in this parable. First, the father here is God. No one debates that. Sometimes Jesus' parables aren't super clear and they require some interpretation, but that's not the case here. The father in this parable represents God. Then the younger son, secondly, stands for all the tax collectors and sinners following Jesus around. The prostitutes like Mary Magdalene, the unclean lepers Jesus healed, the sleazy government officials like Matthew, who was a tax collector before Jesus called him, the people Jesus had cast demons out of, they're the younger sons here. They're the ones who by any religious standard are obviously far from God. And then there's the older son, and that's the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The older son stands for the religious experts, the ones who dot all their I's and cross all their T's, the ones who keep God's commands perfectly, or so they think, and look down on those who don't. On the outside, they look good, but inside their hearts are rotten. They're judgmental, self-righteous, arrogant, but all of their problems, the biggest, um, but of all their problems, the biggest uh, was me, just like me in London. The Pharisees had no idea how lost they really were. That me was Brandon. Now I want to make this clear. Both kinds of lostness in this parable are dangerous. Younger son lostness, living far from God in ways that rebel against him and deserve his judgment and wrath. That's dangerous. But so is older son lostness. In fact, I would make the case that older son lostness is even more dangerous than younger son lostness because it's a lostness that doesn't know it's lost. That's the older son's problem here. That was the Pharisee's problem too. They were so focused on how far everything else was from God that they had no idea how far away they were too. In the midst of Lent, the question for us is, do we, do we know that we're lost? that we're far from the Father, that we need his grace and compassion too. You see, uh, I don't think I'm going uh, out on much of a limb here to say that this is a church of older sons. Most churches are, right? That's why we're a church, because we're the good religious people, right? We're the ones who do dot our I's and cross our T's. We're the ones who toe the lines. We're the ones who work hard. We're the ones who earn what we get. The problem though is that because of that, we're also the ones who sometimes forget we're lost too. And that's what this season of the church year Lent is about. It's about remembering, remembering that we're lost, remembering that we're far from God and remembering that we need him. As Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Shemin writes in his book, Great Lent, we must feel that we are alienated from God from the joy of communion with him, from the real life as created and given by God. It is easy to confess that I have not fasted on prescribed days or missed my prayers or become angry. It is quite a different thing, however, to realize suddenly that I have defiled and lost my spiritual beauty, that I'm far away from my real home, my real life, and that something precious and pure and beautiful has been hopelessly broken in the very texture of my existence. But the church is here to remind me of what I have abandoned and lost. And as she reminds me, I remember. And as I remember, I find in myself the desire to return 
and the power to return. I shall return to the compassionate Father crying with tears. Receive me as one of thy servants. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, like the sons in this parable, we're all lost, each and every one of us. It doesn't matter if we're more like the younger son here or more like the older son or a combination of both. We're all lost. We're all sinners. We're all far from God. We've taken the life he gave us and tried to use that life, that living, that inheritance from our God the way we want. In other words, we've all taken what God has given us and in different ways and some similar ways, we've wasted it. And just like with each of these brothers, there's nothing we can do to fix that. We can't come back like the younger son and try to work our mistakes off. But we also can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're probably good enough for God already, like the older son. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to find our way back home to our father on our own. Fortunately for us, though, we don't have to because we have a different kind of older brother. And this older brother doesn't look down on us. He doesn't refuse to celebrate our return. He doesn't stand outside looking down his nose at us. Instead, he took the debts we incurred against our father and he paid them. He took his inheritance, his living, his life, and like the father in this parable, divided it, broke it apart, tore it in half for us. That's our true older brother, Jesus Christ. And he invites us back into our father's home. Whether older brothers or younger brothers, that's the hope we have. That's the grace we've received. And that's the love we've been given, both by our father and our true older brother, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father God, you are a good, good father. And we've been reminded of that in song uh, and in scripture this morning. God, we give you thanks. And Jesus, we thank you for the life that you lived, for the death that you died, for the victory that you won over sin and death and hell so that we can not only look forward to heaven, but that we can be in relationship with you now. God, we thank you for your word and for how it speaks to us. We pray, God, for um, our pastor, our shepherd, Pastor Brandon. Uh, heal him, help him to feel better as this day goes on. And may all of us, God, strive to live uh, more and more of the lives that you've called us to live uh, through this season of Lent and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.